Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We're getting a lot of emails where people are tired of having these conversations. They feel a sense of urgency. They're telling us there's no room for grace right now. And I get all of that. And here is the thing. There are different types of work that are supposed to be done. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. We're so glad you're here with us for another episode. We have a lot to talk about today. In our main segment, you're going to hear voices from the community talking about their business experiences with COVID-19. We have everything from an operating nurse who traveled to New York to help with coronavirus treatment to people who own a distillery in Tennessee. You're just going to love it, I think. We have a real richness of experience here. People talking about the details of the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, We love sharing your voices like this. In our first segment... Holy breaking news. As we are recording today, we have a Supreme Court decision. We have another tragic killing of a black man by police officers, continued protests, lots to talk about. And we are going to dive into all of that. Before we get started, we posted over the weekend on Instagram about all the places you can find us and find the Pantsy Politics community and realized we probably need to do a little bit better a job of reminding everyone here at Pantsy Politics all the places that this community exists. And first and foremost, friendly reminder, we have another podcast called The Nuance Life that comes out on Wednesdays. We're going to be talking about about how to set boundaries, how to maintain boundaries around COVID-19, what to do if your family's not quite as concerned or as diligent as you are with the mask wearing and the social distancing, how to deal with that mismatch of expectations with other employees and your businesses. And so we think you're really going to like that episode. So make sure and check out The Nuance Life tomorrow. And another place where we have lots of content is Patreon. And we are so thrilled to welcome Jeremy Sequoia, who has been a patron of Pantsy Politics for quite some time now as an executive producer. Thank you so much to Jeremy, to everybody else on our executive producer team, and to all of you over at Patreon. We'll talk more about Patreon later because it is where I get to geek out and do a lot of Supreme Court analysis. It's going to be a busy week for me. Well, America woke up on Saturday morning after weeks and weeks of protest and outcry and conversation about the crisis and policing in America. 
To news from Atlanta, on Friday night, that 27-year-old Rayshard Brooks was shot and killed by a white police officer in a Wendy's parking lot. Someone in the Wendy's called the police because there was a man asleep in his car in the drive-thru. The police approached Mr. Brooks' car, had a conversation with him, did a sobriety test. It seemed to be going fine. And then when they went to arrest him... Uh, A scuffle broke out. He grabbed one of the officer's tasers and began to run. And Officer Garrett shot him three times in the back, and he died from his injuries. The New York Times has a really detailed video breakdown of the sequence of events that we'll include in the show notes. But I don't think that we need video or second-by-second breakdowns to understand that Someone should not lose their life at 27 years old because they had too much to drink. It's just infuriating and heartbreaking. There were protests throughout Atlanta. The officer has been fired. The prosecutors are looking at charges and the Atlanta police chief has resigned. And it's just more fuel on the fire of this racial unrest rocking our country. So just to review... Mr. Brooks failed a field sobriety test. He was intoxicated. He had already been searched, so they knew he did not have a gun. He ran away with his car behind him with a stun gun, which police tell us all the time is not dangerous. And so there was no reason to feel that this was a situation that merited that kind of urgent, deadly force being used. Mm -hmm. How far was he going to go? on foot. They had his car and he was intoxicated. I mean, there's just, it is so senseless. I think it speaks to this entire conversation about individual action versus systemic problems and how ingrained in police culture some of these instincts are, how much trauma exists in our policing culture, not just on the part of officers, but on the parts of people being arrested. And if you're Rayshard Brooks, what are you to expect is going to happen to you in this scenario? There's so much fear on both sides of this equation now. And so much of our fear as Americans manifests in our capacity for violence. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think those of us who would historically have been reluctant to entertain conversations about major policing reform, even questioning the very existence of police departments as they are today, need to grapple seriously with what's going on here because no one wants more of this. Can you imagine waking up as a police officer to that news on Saturday? You know, how much tension you must feel if you're out there trying to Mm -hmm. do a good job every day. And every time this happens, it increases the danger around you. It's just, this is too much It's unsustainable what we're living with right now. And we have got to stop losing human lives. People's sons and fathers and brothers and friends. It's it's too much. Meanwhile, in Seattle, Beth, I don't know if you've heard, but there is a police-free zone that conservative media seems to think is the actual problem. In Seattle, protesters have taken over a couple blocks where there's no... Police presence beyond 911 calls allowed. And did you see where Fox News altered images and used images from other parts of the country to make it seem like it's just a war zone when it seems like it's the envisioning that we need exactly at this moment? What does it look like if we just have a completely new approach? And I'm not saying that we want to expand the Seattle approach worldwide. But to me, the idea that on one side of the country, we're facing another death, another tragic death. And on the other side of the country, we're seeing people take a moment and reinvent their environment. And then that's being seen as the threat. It's just it's so frustrating and so upsetting that this is. That this sort of manipulation of something that we need right now, which is community saying, this is what we want it to look like here. And I know so many of you are hearing these stories and getting forwarded these links. 
from conservative family members. And, you know, I hope that what we can do is say, you know what? First of all, this is being manipulated in many ways. And second of all, I'm not scared of community saying, I want this to look different. I want this to look different than how it looks right now. I would much rather see what's happening in Seattle unfold than what happened in Lafayette Square. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. understand how we got from conservative in the interest of we prefer local solutions to national policy to a network like Fox and a community of people who take such issue with a small portion of Seattle experimenting, being the laboratory of democracy that our cities and states are supposed to be, mm-hmm. and favoring an approach where the United States military is engaged to clear protesters so that the president can walk across Washington, D.C. to a church. I just don't, there is nothing philosophically that aligns with these patterns. And I think that's very revealing. And I think as you're having these conversations with the people around you, those are the kinds of questions I would ask. Please help me understand Mm -hmm. how to put these pieces together because they're not making sense for me. And we're getting a lot of emails where people are tired of having these conversations. They feel a sense of urgency. They're telling us there's no room for grace right now. And I get all of that. And here is the thing. There are different types of work that are supposed to be done. You know, we talked on Friday about how Sarah has an activist heart. We need people with activist hearts. We also need people with peacemakers hearts. We also need people to have these conversations with family members who seem like lost causes because that is the work for some of us. And that is a way that you can use your privilege. And honestly, if you're a person who is white and middle to upper class and not part of the LGBTQ community, I just think we need to ask ourselves, like, what it is that we find so exhausting in trying to work on our friends and family members, because nothing in our experience is as exhausting as living the consequences of so many people being addicted to Fox News and Fox News Mm -hmm. increasingly being pushed to feed that addiction. So if that is your work to do, keep up the work. And if that is not your work Mm -hmm. to do, then do what is yours. As my grandmother would say, it takes all kinds. We need all Mm -hmm. kinds engaged right now. Well, and that's the thing. We don't have to pick one way. We're not taking a Democratic vote on the one way to approach this issue. That's right. Right? Like, it's not, you must be in the streets burning it down. You must run for office. Like, we all are not going to choose one path. And every community is not going to reach the same conclusion for what a new approach to policing means for them, what will be most effective for them. And lots of them are going to get it wrong a couple times. And we're going to continue to evolve. So the idea that we all need to say, absolutely not, Seattle's lost its mind, San Francisco's lost its mind, is, you know, to me, like, let them experiment. Let people try in their communities what speaks to their values, their resources, and their needs, instead of using it to fear monger. I think that that is, you know, I know that that's the easy approach. I get it. I know it drives viewerships. I know it can even drive voters, but we all have to check ourselves for those sort of reactions because it is a knee-jerk thing because we have been born and bred and soaked into the idea that the most important thing is law and order. That's the most important thing. Like the only thing that matters, the only thing that's purely good is law and order and safety. And I, I just think that we have to continue to push back and to rethink and to not default into this mode of thinking when it comes to our local communities or even national politics. I think that's right. I was thinking about what could reform look like where I live. And I think our most pressing need here in northern Kentucky is a different way of responding to drugs. We have been hit very hard by the opioid epidemic. And so asking police officers to uh, administer Narcan constantly seems to me to be a very poor way to grapple with this. That is probably a different need than in a city where there is lots of homelessness. You know, you just are going to need different approaches. We have homelessness here, too. I don't mean to imply that we don't. But I'm just thinking through 
you know, most of politics and all of budgets is about priorities. And so how do you want to sit down and allocate the resources that you have to the problems in front of you? That question should not be so threatening. And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves why we feel so threatened by that question around policing, especially when you look at the coverage of what they're doing in Seattle. Who is harmed by Mm. trying something in such a small area of a city? I just I think it is so transparently an attempt to say, let's go back to normal now, because, look, there's nothing that can be done here that's good. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the news keeps showing us that normal is not available. Richard Brooks was just killed after three sustained weeks of protests about this. Normal's not available. Yeah. Well, and it's just classic slippery slope, which is a logical fallacy. It's a logical fallacy. The idea that if we allow this in Seattle, then it expands to Seattle, then Washington, then the country, and we have no rule of law. Nope. Mm-mm. Nope. That's a logical fallacy. That's not how things work. If you can't look around in 2020 and understand that the predictive model for how we think things are going to go is not awesome, then I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's the least likely scenario, right? Not the most likely this, then this, then this, then this that's going to happen. Because, you know, that could expand to parts in Seattle. It could shrink. It could pop up in Utah. It could shrink. It could expand to a state. Another state could take a totally different approach. We are not a monolith here in the United States. So, you know, using this one example as an indicator that all is lost, you know, besides being Fox News's primary approach, is not logical. In addition, as we talked about on Friday, to this national movement around policing and race, and systemic racism. We are in the middle of Pride Month. We have two back-to-back stories on protections for the LGBTQ community that really paint a picture of the tension in American democracy right now and the importance of our three branches of government that exist co-equally. In the middle of Pride Month and on the anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Florida, the administration saw fit to announce that it was going to reverse the Obama administration's interpretation of a prohibition on discriminating on the basis of sex by healthcare providers under the Affordable Care Act. This is kind of a difficult thing to talk about because like many actions by this administration, it was both largely symbolic. This There's litigation ongoing about this provision and many other provisions of the Affordable Care Act. So nothing was really being implemented presently, but it was also a forceful statement of policy from the administration and a signal about what we think as America in 2020 of our transgender citizens. And so it was incredibly hurtful and senseless and unnecessary and delivered with such a casualness that it was hard to stomach. You know, officials talking about it said, oh, we're just, you know, common sense. Doctors are going to treat biological women as women. And it it was just really an attitude about it that was hurtful to listen to. And then today, moments before we started recording this podcast, we got a 6-3 decision from the United States Supreme Court authored by Neil Gorsuch, one of the conservative justices, stating that under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, Uh, Transgender and gay people are protected from losing their employment. They cannot be fired just because they are gay or transgender. It's an extraordinary opinion that I haven't fully digested yet. I'm going to talk about it on the Nightly Nuance on Patreon, and we will make that episode open to everyone. You do not have to be a paying supporter of the show to to hear it. Uh, But he says right up front that maybe the drafters of Title VII didn't intend this or weren't thinking about it, but the limitations of their imagination don't change what the law should be. And it's Mm. it's just breathtaking to me to hear a justice like Neil Gorsuch uh, say something like that. And so it's a real celebratory moment. People, including me, were holding their breaths about this opinion. And it's a good 
I think, counterweight to the cruelty that the administration tried to unleash through its rulemaking process. I was alerted to this decision by a text message from one of my um, former members on the city commission that I worked with, a Republican commissioner who voted in favor of our fairness ordinance, where we made um, employment discrimination based on sexual identification illegal in Paducah. I think Kentucky's up to like 16 cities. Of course, that doesn't matter. Isn't that beautiful? We don't have to go city by city and state by state to do something that, in my experience as a city commissioner working to pass the fairness ordinance, so many people thought already existed. I can't tell you how many times people would say, well, you can't fire somebody because they're gay. And I'm like, oh, no. Yes, you can. And it was so piecemeal. It was so, I know that you testified in Ohio, like you shouldn't be able to just cross a border and then all of a sudden you can fire somebody because they're gay. That's ridiculous. And it should be protected against. And I'm so glad that we now have this decision saying that so that, you know, no matter your sexual identification or gender identity, you can rest easy knowing that you're not going to get fired because of that. It's 2020. It's just, it's exceptional news. Am I a little nervous that they're throwing us a bone before they overturn Roe v. Wade? Yes, I am. But that's okay. That's for another day. Right now, (laughs) we are just thrilled for this huge victory for this community. We're getting a lot of questions about the interaction between these two stories, too. Does what the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court just did alter the way the Trump administration interpreted this rule? It's really hard to say without having read the entirety of the opinion. You know, my initial reaction would be this case is about Title VII, which is different legislation. However, it could be read broadly enough to impact the way the entire federal government needs to view these Mm -hmm. terms. So I just don't want to answer that conclusively without having read the case and some of the analysis of it. Um, But I I want to acknowledge that that question is on your minds and it's it's a good one. All right. Next up, we are going to shift gears a little bit, turn our attention back to COVID-19 and share your stories about adapting your businesses to this new challenge. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. 
just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour, Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second-chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. So, Beth, it felt like over the weekend, the media really shifted, that the numbers started to go up, sort of this post-Memorial Day surge, especially in southern and western states that reopened sooner than others. And the media was like really focused on the uptick in cases, the lack of mask wearing and social distancing. We saw Oregon pausing its reopening. Cuomo just threatened to do the same. It seemed like... America kind of had this moment of, oh, right, we still have a global pandemic going on. I really enjoy the morning news email from The Dispatch, uh, which is a group of fairly conservative writers who have broken away from websites that have become more Trumpist. And they, every morning, just have a really concise summary of what the numbers look like with some charts. And I keep Mm. watching those numbers thinking, wow, this is so present still. And Mm -hmm. we are not talking about it like it's so present. And I was grateful for this uh, reminder in a flood of stories over the weekend that, in fact, we have cause to be very concerned still. And there are many open questions about what going back to school will look like. I'm concerned about the number of just regular sort of vacations that are happening. I know that in my own life, I have not been as diligent about who I spend time with and how close to those folks I am. And um, it's it's hard to sustain that kind of focus, especially when so many other things are going on. It's also hard to remember that the economic impact of what happened earlier this year and what could happen again in the fall is going to last much longer than our attention on it is going to last. And that's why we were so happy that so many of you answered our call to share some of your experiences with the Paycheck Protection Program, with the decision to open or close your businesses, with your experiences as employees, uh, whether as essential workers or not. And We received lots of messages. We couldn't share them all with you today, uh, but we think we've gotten a good representative sampling for you to hear and are so grateful for your voices and your experiences. Hi, I'm Scotty. I'm from Richmond, Virginia. And over the last two years, I've been in the process of taking over my father's small business. He's an attorney, but he's 73. And so almost immediately, I sent him home and became the only attorney in the office with five employees under me. And I have one very part-time employee at my satellite office. This was my first real obstacle as a small business owner, and it was very difficult. There was a lot of guidance from our governor. You know, he definitely closed restaurants and gyms and salons, and he definitely kept open grocery stores and ABC stores. And uh, But professional businesses didn't get a lot of guidance about what we were supposed to do. At first, staggered my employees and had a lot of hand sanitizer and Clorox wipes and things. And eventually, we closed to the public. But I have a lot of rural clients, a lot of elderly clients. Uh, So Zoom and Skype don't always work well. Uh, Even telephonic appointments don't work well when uh, people only have a cell phone and don't always have great signal. I had some clients get in their vehicles and drive out a ways from their house just to be able to have an appointment with me. I do a lot of bankruptcy, and oftentimes there's a lot of shame or grief involved there. And not being able to sit across from somebody and look them in the eye is difficult and trying to walk someone through that. I also have amazing employees and just the stress of knowing that business is going down and we can't sustain that and their salaries was difficult. I took a big pay cut. I eventually had to do 10% pay cuts across the board 
which was devastating. We were one of the lucky ones that did get payroll protection to work for us. Um, and that comes with its own almost guilt because it was based on the fact that I had a good relationship with our local bank where we keep all of our office accounts, our mortgage on our office is there. And so uh, we had a great um, contact there who kept in touch with us daily, even when uh, SBA wasn't uh, telling them anything. She still emailed me every day to make sure I knew she was uh, still looking out for me. So we got ushered through and it worked and we're good at least um, through mid-June but I don't know what's going to happen after that. And um, we don't know how long this is going to last and fingers crossed that it at some point picks back up. I love my employees. They've been amazing and supportive and, uh, and have gone above and beyond to do as much as they can to support me. And I'm trying to support them and we are trying to stay healthy, but we um, we're just hoping we can make it through the other side. Hi, my name is Molly and I'm a social worker working in community mental health in the Detroit area. If you've kept up with the news, you probably already know that Detroit has been a hotspot of COVID cases. The families I work with in my role have been personally touched by COVID, especially as deaths and cases have continued to rise in Detroit, particularly affecting our communities of color. Our agency had to transition over to a telehealth model for therapy within about a 24-hour period of time, so it was rather quick. Um, unfortunately, our state and county authorities have not been doing their job in changing our reimbursement model to accommodate telehealth. So we're under just constant worry of being laid off or getting a reduction in our pay or hours. Yet we know that therapy should be considered an essential frontline service right now because quarantine is impacting people's mental health in so many ways. I work with families with very young children, and many of these parents have no choice but to put themselves at risk working in restaurants, stores, and banks in order to take care of their kids. They are under extreme stress and so overwhelmed and in need of more support than ever. Also, a lot of the families I work with are really isolated to begin with, and they just don't have a lot of social supports um, outside of therapy and maybe a few family members or friends. So balancing my own stress and worrying about my own job security while also addressing the needs of my families has been really hard, especially when I can only see and talk to them over video. My agency recently developed a committee to strategize what it would be like to return to in-person services. But for my role, I have no idea how long that could be before it's safe to do so because I see families in their homes in the community. I'm preparing many of these families that I may not be able to see them this summer or even this year in person for my protection, but especially for theirs. My name is Michelle. I'm an operating room nurse and a travel nurse. I've been a nurse for 34 years. March 13th, I finished a contract in Arizona and was headed to Florida when I got a new contract. But right before that contract was supposed to start, it was canceled because all elective surgeries were canceled. And for the first time in my entire career, I found myself unemployed, which was just insane. So I volunteered to go to New York City and work with Samaritan's Purse at the Beth Israel Hospital in a COVID unit with COVID patients on a medical floor, and it was completely outside of my comfort zone. I did it for 10 days. It was really stressful. People are really, really sick. They don't recover as fast. People get the flu and get better in a week's time, but this illness just lingers for weeks. It's really, really crazy. It's not a joke. It was a privilege to be able to do that work. When I was done, I went back to Florida, quarantined for 14 days, and now I am headed to Montana where I am supposed to start a contract on Tuesday in the operating room, and I'm really thankful because it's what I know how to do, and I'm actually an expert in the operating room, and I've never been able to call myself an expert until this happened. I'm just grateful to be going back to work. Hi, ladies. My name is Melanie Little. I am a business owner that received PPP money and was responding to share our experiences with the process. We own a bridal business that operates five locations in four states. We are in Arizona, Nevada, Colorado, and Texas. And we were able to secure PPP funding early on in the first round because we have an ongoing 
relationship with a small community bank here in Arizona where we're based. Um, we were texting many days with the vice president of that bank. He was keeping us in the loop. He was helping us navigate through all of the application changes during the process that happened early on. I really am grateful and recognize that that is not the situation that a lot of small business owners were in. And so we were able to secure our loan fairly early on. For a few weeks, it has helped us pay our employees as they were home and not able to work. We didn't have to furlough or lay anyone off. And now that we are starting to reopen in a limited capacity, it is helping us float some of those costs for payroll and some of the other approved expenses while we are ramping back up into our cash flow as our revenues are not where they are typically this time of year just because we haven't been open for two months and now we're open on a very limited basis. So for us, the money has been really a lifeline in making sure that we're able to compensate our people and our teams. And now as we are reopening, it's really been valuable to help us continue to operate in a healthy way as we are building up those um, those sources of, of cash and revenue again. So we are very grateful. We're very appreciative. I know there have been a ton of inefficiencies and a lot of inequities in the process, but for us, it has been incredibly helpful and we are grateful and appreciative uh, for all of the help that we have received along the line. Hey, this is Marty Scruggs and my husband and I own a small microbrewery in East Tennessee with a campground and food available. Um, we have received little guidance from our state government. We have executive orders that come out every now and then, and all of our information has to be pulled from those executive orders. We have to figure out the wording, figure out what we're allowed to do, and the legalities of it with no guidance. It's very frustrating. However, we have a team of friends and one of those friends actually uh, wrote the pandemic response uh, for Bush. He was on that team and so he's helped us a lot uh, making wise choices and we've had to spend a lot of money on a canning machine and cans and paying someone to help us can because we can one beer at a time. We've also started delivering all over East Tennessee from Knoxville to Crossville and beyond. And we even uh, took a load to Nashville, which is three hours from us. So we have worked really hard to stay alive. This is normally our super busy season since we have a campground. We also have bands and we've had to cancel all that. And this season takes us through winter because as you can imagine, since we're an outside venue, we're dead in the winter. But uh, we've made it and we've pulled all of our creative energy together and some of the things we're going to keep doing. And I am thankful to our senator who has answered a lot of our questions and helped us make decisions about delivery. We've reached out to him and he's been a great help. That's what I'd like to share with you about my experience as a small business. Thank you for caring. Love you, girls. Hi. I am a small engineering firm in the Midwest and I'm participating in the PPP loan program. My frustrations don't lie in the actual application and funding process. I found that to be okay with my bank. It's the forgiveness component and the lack of financial guidance that's been given to business owners that is the worst. We still don't have any firm guidance on if the forgiveness amount will be taxable to the extent if the payroll taxes that are forgiven will be deductible or not on taxes. The answer to this question will determine if I even apply for forgiveness or not. My business only has four employees and pretty low overhead rate, with labor being the biggest chunk of that. Those eight weeks of payroll costs are a large chunk of my overall costs, so the decision of deductibility is the main component of if I will ask for forgiveness or not. When I first applied, so many factors were up in the air, like if work would be halted and what a backlog would look like in a couple months. Um, the engineering industry typically feels recessions much later than other sectors, 
probably six months from now is when our work would be affected. We've had enough work to keep my people busy through this time, which makes me want to give the money back. But what about six months from now, if it slows down, will I be wishing that it was there and regret it? At this point, I just don't know what to do. So I'm waiting for some more guidance that might never come. My name is Leslie. I am a hospital chaplain and the director of spiritual wellness for my hospital. I remember the day that the CEO of my system sent out an all-staff email saying, if you are a a non-essential worker, we need you to gather your belongings and what you need to work from home and be out of the building by such and such a time, prepared to work from home for the duration. And I remember in that moment thinking, I'm 99.9% sure that I'm an essential worker, but I don't know what my administration thinks. And I also don't know if I want to be an essential worker in this moment. In about 30 minutes, I'd say it was all clarified that yes, chaplains are essential workers and we would be staying. And I felt mostly good about that, but a little bit of apprehension. And the days went on and my job every day, I felt like I had to reinvent as I learned new ways to protect myself and my patients and my my fellow staff members. And as I learned how to care for patients who are all alone, um, whether they have COVID-19 or not, are going through some hard crisis in life without their loved ones by their side. How I learned to care for staff who were doing harder things than they'd ever done before and were just as worried as all of us about their families um, and their patients more than ever. And um, so it was kind of like reinventing myself, my department. And it was both the hardest thing I've ever done, the most exhausting thing I've ever done, and um, the most inspiring thing I've ever done. I've um, been so amazed to see the power and the strength and the beauty of humanity um, through this experience. And so um, I'm happy to say that I am an essential worker and I love my job and I love the people I work with and I love this beautiful, messy world. Hello from the beautiful Black Hills. I am the proud owner of Black Hills Base Camp Climbing Gym in Rapid City, South Dakota. My husband and I have been dreaming of opening a climbing gym since we married nearly five years ago. Last fall, after market research and lots of prayer, we started construction. We opened February 15, 2020. Just a few short weeks after opening, the CDC started issuing guidance about limiting groups of people gathered together. We started canceling events and eventually decided to close to the public. Living in a state that never issued safer at home orders or that closed non-essential businesses means that all the decision making about how and when to close was left up to us, the new business owners. We decided to close our doors to the public on March 15th. Our city eventually decided to close restaurants and recreational facilities, specifically naming climbing gyms, even though we are the only climbing gym in town, on March 27th. They asked people to stay at home and give our hospital time to prepare. During this time, many of our members chose to keep paying us, even though we had closed the gym. I've been so humbled by people's generosity and have learned to be grateful for every encouraging word the members sent us during the closure. When our city declared the hospital ready and business closures would no longer be mandatory, my husband and I were faced with a decision about how best to serve our climbers and protect the health of the community. We decided to open to members only. Every member is given a key to the gym and they can come and go at their leisure. I'm proud to report people have been coming to the gym with only their quarantine group and they usually have the gym to themselves while they're there. Many precautions like regular cleaning, asking climbers to wash their hands before they climb, and not accepting new members are among the list of things we are doing to ensure base camp is as safe as we can make it during this time. I may never know if this is the appropriate balance between trying to maintain a business and protecting the public interest. It's a balancing act I'm trying to live with every day. Hi, my name is Christy Bondurant, and I'm a microbiologist and epidemiologist from Arkansas. Like so many, my usual work schedule was turned upside down when our family adjusted to school closures. So while I was social distancing at home with my children, I began working with two other moms to write a storybook titled Mira Does Her Part, How One Girl Vanquished a Virus with Healthy Habits. We included kid-friendly science at the end 
to help explain some of the new terms that uh, and concepts that are just floating around as we discuss this current pandemic. So as states continue to process relaxing restrictions, Mira's example is needed even more. It is our individual actions and ability to follow the guidance of our public health experts that will determine how this next phase plays out. It's really up to us. Hi, I'm Jen Holman. I'm an author and co-wrote Mira Does Her Part with Christy Bondurant and Carrie Smith. When the world began to change and when schools closed here on March 11th, both my profession and my creative outlet were ripped away. In their place were three kids under 13 who need constant help with online classes and who somehow produce more trash in dirty cups than I would have ever thought possible. You can't create with three kids in the house. You can't get in the zone without a soundproof office. At least I can't. So life as I knew it screeched to a halt, as did the life my children were used to. No sports, no music, no gymnastics. Our kids couldn't see their friends, and neither could I. The kids asked a lot of questions about social distancing and viruses, and honestly, I needed something to do with my creative energy. So when Carrie sent a message from her new home in Germany with the Air Force, saying we should work together again to write a children's book about coronavirus, I jumped at the chance. We knew Christy, Dr. Bondurant, from our kids' elementary school. She's an epidemiologist and microbiologist and teaches guest science classes at schools. We thought kids and their parents could both benefit from Christy's knowledge of contagious disease, and the rest is history. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, 
Whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Hello, my name is Holly, and I am one of the co-founders of Client-Centered Solutions and Empowerment. That's CCS Empowerment for short. We are business strategists who support small business owners and entrepreneurs to show up online and in social media platforms. We launched in October 2019, and business had just started picking up for us, and we just started product launch when COVID hit and small businesses were forced to close and our business dried up. And... We did consider looking at loans and some other assistant programs, and we discussed that a bit, and we realized that we had enough in savings to keep our business afloat and continue to support small businesses the best way we can. And one of the things that really saved us is that we keep our overhead costs really low so that we were passing those savings onto our customers and our clients. So that really helped us a lot, and it helped us make that decision to not pursue assistance financially and continue to leave those resources for people who are in greater need than us. So we're fortunate in that and we're grateful for that. We are looking at this unprecedented time as a renaissance period for small businesses. And we're here for that. We're here to help people grow and adjust. And we are spending a lot of time training people on social media marketing, how to build websites with SEO. Right now we are sponsoring one business about every month and a half and providing them a free website with SEO built in and teaching them how to take care of their website, update it, maintain it, things like that. So we're finding a lot of positive things that we can do, both in our communities, but also for our clients. Uh, things that we're doing in our communities, we're donating our time to, to make filters for masks for our, our medical personnel that are working at the hospitals, as well as surgical gowns. Just doing what we can, because this is, is, a, is a new thing for everybody, and we're all handling it the best way we can, and extending grace and love and patience wherever possible in communities. And we're here for that, and uh, it's it's been a challenge, for sure. It's uh, going to be it's gonna be an interesting what the end results are, and I am leaning on the positive side of that. This is Emily from Berkeley, California, and I work for a business that makes small binding machines. Our primary customers are other businesses, so we're in a very uncertain place because if the economy doesn't come back or it comes back in a small way or crawls back, our business will have a hard time keeping the lights on, and, and that's a really kind of scary place to be. We do have some good things going for us. Our founder is a very creative guy. And when the shelter in place began, he walked around the factory and realized that we had all the supplies we needed to make face shields. So the last few weeks, we've been bringing people back and starting that process of manufacturing those. And that part is great. We're making a product that feels like it can actually help people during this time. And that is that is a huge relief. But the other side of that is that we don't really know how to really break into a completely different industry. So there's a lot of challenges and again, uncertainty. On the last note, I would also point out that when you're working at a small company, um, everything is very, very personal. You know, it's not just that there's, you know, coworkers, but you know everyone and you know their kids and what schools they go to and like the names of their pets um, because you get to know people in a really deep way. So there's that feeling of fear. Is everyone going to be okay? Is everyone going to be able to come back? Will there be jobs? What's going to happen to their families? What's going to happen to my family? Yeah. Yeah, it's tough times, um, but there's also some hope, and I do appreciate what we are trying to do to help meet this moment. Hello, my name is Christy. I'm an essential worker. I work in an HR department at a distribution center in northern Mississippi. I live in the Memphis, Tennessee area. I've been considered an essential worker the entire time. 
I'm happy that my workplace is taking the COVID-19 response pretty seriously. We've been doing temperature checks since the end of March every day when we go to work. They've got masks for everyone. They've split our shifts so that the first shift and the second shift don't have any connectivity. One of the exceptions to that is my supervisor who works both shifts. So any contact I have with her is really contact with someone that's seeing folks on both shifts, which is a little concerning. We don't have any cases at the distribution center where I work so far. There's about 360 people that work there. So it was a really anxious time when I first started doing that. Died down a little bit, but you still think about touch points constantly. Every time I'm touching a piece of paper that someone gives me, um, when people come into the office to talk to me, we have them stop at the doorway. But some people are good about that and some people aren't good about that. I think maybe folks that are staying home like my husband don't really fully appreciate the, the amount of thinking you're doing about every surface you touch and how often that you're touching those things. And I can't fathom how it must be if I worked at a grocery store or a doctor's office or something like that. I have very few contacts right now and I'm still anxious about it. But I'm very thankful that I have a job. And I'm super thankful that uh, my stepson's mom is also able to work from home and that we're all on the same page with our concern and risk assessment about everything so that we can all move forward on the same page. Um, It would be much more stressful if that wasn't the case. Hi, my name is Chris Lovejoy, and I'm a realtor in the New Haven area in Connecticut. I also have a painful debilitating disease. I've had complications with it over the last couple of years and which has caused me not to be able to treat the disease or um, take any pain medication. For me, the pain has become a background noise. I still have my ambitions, my intellect, my expertise and real estate because of quarantine has changed. A lot is being done virtually by everybody and so it's opened new opportunities for me. Um, In the past couple months, I've closed on three properties and I'm working with six additional clients right now. And that wouldn't have happened without people seeing things in a different way. The reality is that people are too busy right now. In this area, we might have someone working in New York City and someone working in Hartford, and they really don't want me during their family time on a Saturday sitting in their living room. So if I can have a Zoom meeting at lunchtime with them to do a listing presentation, um, that's more convenient for everybody. So the the business, I think, hopefully is changing permanently so that people like me can have um, opportunities. People will see that it's more efficient maybe to, to work in this way. So I've actually benefited from the quarantine. Um, not that I'm glad about about the, the disease. I'm absolutely, of course, not and pray for the families who um, are experiencing all these difficulties. But the reality is it has opened up opportunities for me that I wouldn't have had without it. Thank you so much to everyone who shared their professional experiences, their journey as business owners during this really unprecedented time. We wanted to end today by sharing just an extraordinary message we received from Rosalind Hunter. Rosalind wrote to us and we loved what she had to say so much that we said, do you mind to read this so that we can share it on the show in your voice instead of ours? And so without taking anything away from Rosalind's own words, here she is. Dear Sarah and Beth, I listened to your podcast of June 9th, How We React to Systemic Racism and Reform, and I wanted to thank you for tackling the difficult subject of racism in America. As a black female, I have often seen white people turn away from discussing race because they want to avoid conflict, so it meant a lot that you devoted so much time to talk about it. You mentioned that some of your listeners felt helpless or confused about the issues, that they understood that there was injustice happening, but they didn't know what to do or say. And what I'd like to ask them is, are you feeling sympathy or empathy? Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone because of their sad situation, and empathy is standing in their shoes. When the Me Too movement started, many men admitted to not knowing what to do when they heard of the widespread acts of sexual harassment and rape of women. At first, many of them didn't believe it. Even men who had witnessed the acts discounted them or even blamed the victim. 
Some men admitted that the situation was unfair. It was sad, they said. But it was just the way things were. Nothing could be done about it. They felt sympathy for the women, but not empathy. They felt sorry for them, but they couldn't imagine what it was like to be in their shoes. They couldn't imagine how it would feel to have hands groping them, to have to choose between sex with their boss and their job. Yes, it was sad, but that was just one creep, and life was hard for men, too. When thousands of women rose up and demanded change, some of them so angry that they were willing to burn the whole system to the ground rather than stay another day in industries that had abused and exploited them, many men were shocked. They recoiled. Hadn't we already done enough? They'd moved the offending male to a different department. They'd taken sensitivity training. The women were clearly overreacting. Change was happening incrementally. And it was better than it had been 50 years ago. Couldn't the women just quiet down and let everybody get back to business? But that wasn't enough. It isn't enough. Sympathy isn't enough. To truly get rid of sexism and sexist structures that perpetuate it, there has to first be a change in men's hearts until they can imagine themselves in a woman's shoes until they can see women as their equals, then the same injustices will keep repeating themselves over and over and over again. What's happening now in the streets of America is the same thing. Black people have said for decades that they were being targeted and murdered by police. And at first, many white people didn't believe them. Even those who had witnessed police violence discounted it or even blamed the victim. But as more and more videos showed incontrovertible evidence of how blacks were treated by the police, people accepted that it was true, but it was just that one cop. It's sad that this happens, but that's just the way things are. Nothing can be done about it. When people say this, I know they're feeling sympathy, but not empathy. They feel sorry for the plight of blacks, but they can't imagine being one themselves. They can't imagine what it's like to have a target on your back, to fear that every traffic stop might mean your death, or the death of your husband, or the death of your children. Remember the rage women felt in the Me Too movement because of the violation of their bodies, of their futures, of their dreams? If you can feel that, then you can understand the rage people are expressing over a man placing his knee on a black man's neck and ignoring the pleas and protests of bystanders as he slowly choked the man to death, willfully and confident in his right to do so. If you can remember what it felt like to be ignored and discounted, to have men proven to have done wrong still get elected to high offices, to watch women be brutalized by sexist violence and have the institutions that we belong to do nothing but give them a little sympathy, then you understand why so many people are fed up and risking death by plague and police to say that enough is enough. If you want to know what to do or say about the racism inherent in our policing, just think of what you would say about sexism to a man who'd been in a sexist institution all of his life. You would tell him first to notice sexism in himself and in others, to point it out, especially when there are no women present to do so. You might tell him to second-guess his own actions, to go out of his way to consider a woman for a job opening that he imagined a man filling, to mentor a woman and not treat her differently just because of her sex. You would take time to talk to your sons about sexism, to tell them that it is wrong and that they should support policies that encourage fairness and respect for women. If you can understand what to say to them, then you can talk to your children about racism Encourage them to support policies that promote fairness and respect for all peoples. You can not accept it when people say that the institutions can't be changed. We made the institutions, we can remake them. If the coronavirus has shown us anything, it has shown us that the world can change. It can change on a dime if it's motivated enough. 
Being sad about the way things are isn't enough. You have to imagine how the world could be better, how the world would be if we actually believed the things that we tell our children, that we should do unto others as we would wish them to do unto us, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. If you empathize enough to think of this as our fight, instead of their fight, then maybe, maybe we have a chance, a fighting chance, to make America a better place tomorrow than it is today. Thanks for listening. My name's Rosalind Hunter. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears, like we said, tomorrow on The Nuance Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Productions. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Allison Luzader, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Barry Kaufman, David McWilliams, Emily Neasley, Janice Elliott, Jared Minson, Joshua Allen, Lori Ladau, Martha Branitsky, Sarah Ralph, Tiffany Hasler, Tim Miller, and Tracy Putoff. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram at Pantsuit Politics.